China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Isa Ding, an assistant professor in the political science department at the University of Pittsburgh. Today we'll be discussing her paper entitled Performative Governments, which was recently published in World Politics. Isa, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. As an initial question to start the conversation, I wanted to ask about your intellectual biography. Just specifically, how did you come to the, the current set of research interests you have? What puzzles have animated your work so far? Yeah, thank you. I started getting interested in the environment simply because I was in China doing field work in 2012 and air pollution was really bad. I was working on a different topic and that was not going anywhere. So I just thought, you know, why not work on something that's important, not just theoretically, academically, but also normatively. So that's how I got interested in the environment. And then as my research agenda unfolded, I realized that I am motivated by puzzles and paradoxes. So for instance, China wants to pursue both economic development and environmental protection. And as we know, these two things come into tension, despite the recent progress made in renewable energy, for instance, also something I'm interested in. And another example is I've just published this paper called The Autocrat's Moral Legal Dilemma, in which I explore the simultaneous, the development of China's legal system to be more rational and to be uh, more based on law. But at the same time, what happens when the law comes into tension with popular morality? So those are some of the so-called antinomies I explore in my own research. Thank you. And if for nothing else, because uh, after reading your bio on your website, I learned the word antinomy, which I'd never heard of it and had to immediately go look up in the dictionary. We're going to spend the bulk of our conversation talking about, uh, as I mentioned, this, this recent paper uh, from last year in world politics called Performative Governance. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you sort of a level set question of for, for an authoritarian regime like China or any other authoritarian regime where leaders aren't subject to regular free elections, why would a government need to be responsive to political and popular demands? In the context of China, Xi Jinping is not worried about elections. The party has strong control over physical and digital spaces where protests might occur so why do they need to listen and react to what Chinese citizens want? Why can't they just ignore them? The CCP believes that it needs to respond to public opinion because the CCP is a revolutionary regime. So the party came to power by successfully leading a social revolution, by recruiting people to join the revolution, and by obviously succeeding in the civil war. You know, Deng Xiaoping famously said that a revolution party is most afraid of not hearing the voices of the people. So even from the party's perspective, because they came to power this way, 
、uh, through people's support, and therefore logically they need to stay in power through people's support. And perhaps this is something that's unique to the CCP、um, because it's a revolutionary regime. But I would also say, even just for authoritarian regimes in general, they need to heed the voices of the people. Just because if they don't, people can overthrow them. These attempts might fail sometimes, but still, I think its legitimacy is within the realms of concern for most authoritarian regimes. At the same time, I think you're right in pointing out that the party has strong control over physical and digital spaces, especially in recent years. And I think the technology for repression for control has just become so much better. So、I think it's definitely a question、uh, whether responsiveness is as important now as it was in the past. And by in the past, I mean you know perhaps the past few decades. And I think it's a really great question. And I think you know public opinion can also be shaped. So when we even talk about what the people want and what the people need, it's important to keep in mind that what the people want and need. In all kinds of societies, can be shaped by elites, can be shaped by those in power. So having control over the digital space, for instance, means that the party can also actively shape what people want and what they respond to. So, for instance. I、mentioned briefly, I worked on this paper on the tension between popular morality and legal development, and what we noticed in recent years is the party has, you know, noticed that, and then they're saying, okay, we're going to actively shape public opinion, or we're going to engage in moral governance. So we're going to be active in making sure that there isn't this tension in terms of how we define. Morality, or what our definition of morality is, and what people's definition is. So I think it's a dynamic process, an interaction between what people want and what the regime wants people to want. Before we get into the specific results of your fieldwork, which I'm also going to ask you to to explain a little bit about what that fieldwork was at a conceptual level, can you unpack what performative governance is? I understand both words in isolation, but can you explain when we when we put them together? What what are you talking about at a conceptual level? At the conceptual level, performative governance is defined as the theatrical deployment of language, symbols, and gestures to foster an impression of good governance amongst citizens. So this is something that's not unique to China or to authoritarian regimes. This is something that we observe governments do everywhere. So there's the kind of substance of governance, which would be the actual functional outcomes of governance. But this is a process wrapped around it that is about shaping perceptions of how effective or not a governance entity may be acting. Exactly. So the conceptual alternative to performative governance would be a substantive governance, and obviously those things are mutually exclusive only at the conceptual level. At the definitional level, in real life, they oftentimes overlap. There's also a lot of discussion debates over what the word performative means. And as I was writing my book, I checked the dictionary a couple of times, and the definition to this word even just evolved over the past few years. In part because this word actually has been picked up in the popular discourse, so you see this word actually more and more, even just in our everyday discussion and in our discussion of government behavior. 
And also, you know, in recent years, there's a lot of criticisms, uh, the kind of performative outrage uh, that's expressed on social media over some of the global and social issues that we're collectively experiencing. And so this word's becoming increasingly popular and its definition actually has evolved from the more academic definitions to this more popular definition, which is kind of just this behavior that is theatrical and perhaps behavior that is meant to convey an impression of something, but not, you know, substantively this thing. Uh, Just to drill down on this a, a little bit, when you said that of course, substantive governance and symbolic governance are not are not in conflict at an actual level. That would be the example, right, of a city police department making a big drug bust, but then also making a big deal on the media, right, of displaying, you know, laying out all the drugs on the table as they often do to really ch- the, the performance of, of governance so that they're not necessarily intention. But to drill down on where there might be daylight, to where there is not a substantive governance outcome, but there's a big to-do made, made about that. How is that possible? In other words, shouldn't the performance of a state be pretty easy to gauge for a citizen if it's there or not? In other words, can't I tell if there are potholes or not in, in the roads? So can you talk a little bit about where, where the space for performative governance is, where a citizen may not necessarily be able to distinguish if, if there's any, um, you know, if, if the rubber meets the road. In the case that I discuss in this article, it's environmental governance in China. And in this particular case, the environmental bureaucracy, at least at the time of my research, had no authority to implement a lot of the environmental regulations. And they had no power over the powerful businesses in the locality. So in this case, they couldn't actually engage in substantive governance and they knew they could not engage in substantive governance. So then what they did was displaying these language symbols and gestures of good governance to citizens. And then to come to your question, why isn't the performance of a state obvious to citizens? And I think I would start by saying that it's not obvious anywhere. There's a study I cite in my article by Suzanne Medler looking at the income tax cut, actually looking at the Democratic Party in the United States and the Obama administration in particular by saying that there was an income tax cut that Obama did for 95% of Americans, actually, it didn't really give them any credit in terms of public opinion. Instead, I think over 70% of Americans actually thought that taxes had increased or stay the same. I think even when you have substantive governance, I think Mettler argues that without the propaganda, for the lack of better terms, it doesn't register easily with the citizens because people are busy, people don't really pay attention to the news, and then we're just overwhelmed with the amount of information we're getting. And then another study I cite by Xiaobo Lu, who finds that after the Chinese government abolished school fees in China, so the, the local governments were responsible for paying for school for children, actually didn't receive credit, public support for that. So that's another example. And I think, you know, when it comes to my specific case of air pollution here, you could say that because air pollution is something that, you know, you could see, you could feel, but it's not a concrete number, even though people can actually look uh, air pollution level on their phone. And so you might argue, you know, perhaps in this particular case, it's not as discernible in terms of the day-to-day changes. Having said that, my survey amongst 
urban citizens in China actually found that people are not that gullible. So people do know when air pollution is better, when air pollution is worse. So people can actually discern substantive government performance. And my point, my argument is that on top of that, performative governance matters. In terms of shaping public opinion, so it's not to say that people are stupid. You know, they don't know that air pollution is bad, but it's to say that performative governance also matters. Let's get into the meat of your argument. I wonder if you can just give us just a, a minute or so of context and background on the the fieldwork you did for the paper, just just to set the scene. When did you do this? Where was the geographical location? And just give us a little bit of color on, on what the process was when you were doing the fieldwork. I started my fieldwork in winter 2013, so that was obviously the time air pollution in China, in Beijing in particular, was dominating the news, both in China and outside China. So this was a period where public outrage over air pollution was especially strong. Both in China and outside of China, and then I started doing field work in the Yangtze River Delta, which is one of China's richest regions. It's on the coast. It's near Shanghai, so it's a region that's rich or comparatively rich, and it's a region that has generally higher state capacity than other parts of China, which is why. When I started doing my field work, I actually expected to see good governance, to see substantive governance. So that was written in my doctoral dissertation prospectus. So when I met with my committee before my field work, I told them, you know, I was going to Yangtze River Delta to discover good governance, and I was going to compare that this best practice with worst practice in other parts of China. But when I got there, when I started to get closer to the Bureaucracy in charge of environmental regulation implementation, which is the EPB, the Environmental Protection Bureau, which is the Chinese EPA. What I realized that they utterly lacked the ability to implement environmental regulations, and the reason for that is is manifold. But one of them is they simply lack the authority. You know, in the law, it says that the bureaucracy actually could not decide to close down factories, and the fines they were able to give out was relatively small compared to the income of the powerful businesses. And then, just you know, in my observation, I realized that the bureaucracy was quite weak vis-a-vis -vis the powerful businesses, the polluting businesses, vis-a-vis -vis the bureaucracies in charge of economic activities, which might side with the powerful businesses. So they simply didn't really have the capacity to engage in good governance or substantive governance, which is why I realized my prior hypotheses about the bureaucracy perhaps should be adjusted. And as I follow these bureaucrats around and as observe what they were doing, and I realized, okay, maybe I thought that I would find good governance in the region because of what I was reading, because I was、uh, reading both in the yearbooks but also in the news, right? Because I thought they were doing good governance. But they were not, and they were, upon closer examination, engaging in performative governance, which is displaying efforts of good governance without the ability to actually deliver that. Just wonder if you can kind of go a little bit deeper into the realities of of what this performative government looks like in the environmental space. So you've got a lot of rich detail in the paper on just like what this looked like in practice. 
I wonder if you can just give us a high-level summary of performative governance in this space around the time that you were doing the fieldwork. And of course, we recognize that China's bureaucratic system has restructured since then. There are now, of course, different priorities coming from the top on carbon neutrality. So certainly the context changes, but, but nonetheless, there's still some really critical insights to derive from the uh, that tension you talked about between low levels of bureaucratic credibility or power and high expectations. So this undoubtedly exists in other pockets of the Chinese system and will manifest in the future. So it's still incredibly helpful. Can you just talk about some of the observations that you made while doing this fieldwork about the lived reality of performative governance? Sure. Performative governance has three parts. So the first is appearing responsive to public opinion. The second is demonstrating benevolent intentions. And the third is to make these efforts visible to the wider public. And I can just give you perhaps some concrete examples just to show what this looks like in real life. So on responsiveness, you have to get back to citizen complaints really quickly. And then I'll just give you this example that came up in an interview I did. Actually, this was in Shenzhen, so this was not in the Yangtze River Delta, but just to kind of give you a sense of how widespread this phenomenon is. So I was talking to this EPB bureaucrat in Shenzhen, and then she gave me a really vivid example of how this works. So she said one day she was taking a nap, Chinese bureaucrats take siesta during the day at noon, so they would keep a foldable bed in their office and they would take a nap in the bed after lunch for half an hour, an hour. And then she said in the middle of her siesta, she was awoken by this hard knocking on the window that was right next to her. And then she jumped to her feet and then she got scared and she said she had a quote unquote near heart attack. And then she saw the citizen outside her window ready to file a complaint about a polluting enterprise. You know, at this point, what does she do? In here, you know, the bureaucrat would say, okay, come back when we open at 1 p.m., right? But in this case, she had to immediately get up and to receive the citizen, invite them into the office, and then record their complaint and obviously get back to them within a few days. So kind of being very responsive in the sense of always ready to take the complaints and to respond to them, even though, at least at the time, most of the responses issued to the citizens actually did not resolve their issues that they were complaining about. And then I'm kind of appearing benevolent to citizens. So you have to demonstrate gestures of concern, care, and submission to the people. For instance, I include some details. And one detail is that when I visited the office of the Environmental Protection Bureau, the bureaucracy at the time only had one leather couch in the entire building. And the leather couch actually sat in their petitions office, which was also the bureau's biggest rooms and with kind of calligraphy uh, hanging on the wall. And so just kind of this small detail tells you, right, the, the, the amount of effort they put into being benevolent or showing benevolence to the people. And then every night, and especially during the weeks when air pollution is really bad, you actually get citizens calling in throughout the day and in the middle of the night, and then bureaucrats will be asked to stay behind after work and then to take citizens' phone calls. So even when the calls turn out to have nothing to do with air pollution, again, another really vivid example I remember was the citizen complaining about air pollution, but it turned out he began to 
a weep and then you know complain about his wife leaving him. But then the bureaucrat had to stay on the phone and and to console him and and kind of provide therapy until the caller was satisfied. And then the caller decides when to hang up the phone. Those are some examples of gestures of benevolence. And then lastly, on visibility and just the agency makes a effort to put their investigations、uh, on their website with vivid details, and then also try to publish those in the local news media. And there were town halls every year the government held, where the leaders of the directors of the bureaucracies, including the EPB, would get on stage to be yelled at by citizens and to answer citizen questions. And then during these years, the main concern from the citizens was about environmental protection, both air pollution and water pollution. So the EPB director would do a talk, do a presentation about. The bureaucracy's work over the past year, literally, they would be yelled by the citizens at their lack of effectiveness, and then they would apologize sincerely and promise to do better. So that's kind of a example of both benevolence, but also visibility, which is you have to make your efforts visible to people; otherwise, they wouldn't know that you're making these efforts. Just as a, as a final. Final sort of topic or question. I wanted to ask you about the the limits or the outer bounds of performative. When does a an attempt to wrap action or in some cases inaction in appearance of you know proactive benevolence? How far can you push that? When does performance or performative governance begin to break down? Either in the context of the field work you did, or at a general level, can you talk to us about how far the party state is able to push this before the cracks in the foundation emerge? Theatrical performance of good governance begins to break down. I think there are three conditions, at least three conditions, under which we might see this going away. One is when there's simply less of a need to do that. So when there is capacity for good governance or for substantive governance, one might argue you still need to engage in performative governance to get credit. But you do see more substantive governance, and I think you do see more of that even by the environmental bureaucracy in recent years, and especially after the 2018 administrative reform, after which the bureaucracy was given more power. I think the first condition is when capacity increases. However, in my recent interviews, I think even recently, many would say even though the EPB has gotten stronger, it's still not as strong as the economic bureaucracies. And the second and third condition would be either actor cynicism or audience cynicism, and those are the terms I take from Irvin Goffman, who wrote extensively about impression management. So, actor cynicism refers to basically, in this case, the bureaucrats who are engaging in performative governance would be dissatisfied with the role that they're playing. And then you do see a bit of that. So some of the bureaucrats that I observed, and especially the younger and more ambitious bureaucrats, would be dissatisfied by the lack of power they had working at the bureaucracy. And then you do see that they would try to leave the bureaucracy to, for instance, join a more powerful bureaucracy within the state. And then some of them actually have succeeded at doing that. So the actors of performative governance might just be kind of dissatisfied with what they're doing, either because you know they believe this is not the right thing to do, which is when we would sometimes observe whistleblowers, for instance, that point. 
point out the state's malfunction, but also when the bureaucrats are simply just dissatisfied with their own lack of capacity to be effective. And the last condition, audience cynicism, which is when people, when the audience of performative governance know that the government is putting on the show and they're not happy with this. Sometimes, you know, they're okay with it. Sometimes you do see people saying, okay, seeing efforts being made is better than not hearing back at all. Right. So we all know that when we complain to, I don't know, Amazon, right? So with our dissatisfaction with our purchases, hearing back is better than not hearing anything at all. But a lot of times, especially more serious issues, for instance, in the early stages of the pandemic, and I think I think both in China, but also people in other parts of the world see that governments are being performative, even though perhaps because they didn't know how to deal with this issue, people become dissatisfied simply because scrutiny is so strong or simply because people really, really needed the issue to be resolved. And then I think in my book, I have a, a chapter that delves more into performative breakdown. And I argue in this case, information matters and destructive information matters. And so I use an example of uh, both the pandemic and also some other examples from other parts of the world to show how when citizens can acquire destructive information that the government is merely putting on a show, they will be less satisfied or the effect performative governance has on public opinion would perhaps be even perverse. And then I would conclude by saying that even the government knows that performative governance is not a cure. So right now, there is a campaign in China against so-called bureaucratism and formalism. And I think a part of this campaign is dealing with performative governance or what I'm talking about. Formalism in particular refers to governance that pursues forms and not effects. So Xi Jinping defines formalism as replacing concrete implementation with garish forms and covering up tensions and problems with glamorous appearances. So I think the central government's concern with quote-unquote formalism really overlaps with my observation of performative mm -hmm. governance. And I think those are not the same thing, but they really overlap. And I think scholars disagree on what's the cause of formalism or, or performative governance. So my argument is the lack of capacity, right? So the institutional problems, the institutional issues that the state experiences. And I think the party leaders tend to attribute that to the individual moralities of the bureaucrats and the local officials. I think there is a disagreement over what the root causes of formalism or performative governance is. But I think this phenomena in general is something that's more widespread than we think. And even the central government realizes it's a phenomenon and then they see it as a problem. That's, a, I think, probably a good place to wrap this up, because I think that was a really nice, really nice analysis at the end. And I think the connection to Xi Jinping's recent campaign against formalism is quite apt. So that was really he's a really great paper, which I think gives a good framework for thinking about different dimensions of governance, which I think until reading it, once I saw a lot of the analysis, I thought, oh, yeah, I see this and notice this all around me in the United States, performative governance, but hadn't thought about it in the context of Chinese governance. So it was incredibly useful. 
and recommend people read the paper. So thank you very much. This was really this was really great. Really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to reading the book, which is coming out when? Next summer. Next summer. So uh, for those of you who one academic paper on performative governance is not enough and you want more, you can look forward to a full, uh, full book length treatment. So Isa, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, Peakingology listeners. I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on chinapower.csis.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.